Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Dan Cohen, president of Viacom CBS Global Distribution Group, about how the firm navigated its merger and COVID-19 last year and is positioning itself for 2021. And James Burstall, chief executive of Argonon, on the human aspects of running a company amidst a pandemic. Dan Cohen became president of Viacom CBS Global Distribution Group last year in the wake of Viacom and CBS completing their merger at the end of 2019. The company spent 2020 bringing its expanded portfolio together while at the same time navigating the coronavirus crisis and in parallel with other US studios putting an increased emphasis on streaming. Cohen spoke to Ed Waller about these changes the way in which Viacom CBS is supporting the rollout of its new Paramount Plus VOD offering while continuing to license programming to third parties, the changing status of US cop shows and international co-productions. The Viacom CBS merger closed in December of 2019. So we spent most of 2020 assembling what we felt was the strongest team we could because there was a you know a very strong legacy Paramount sales team that I headed, a very strong uh, legacy CBS sales team that Armando Nunez headed, and there were also execs within Viacom doing content licensing. So Armando and I collaborated and we put together what we thought was the, the strongest organization we could with an eye towards keeping folks on the ground in territory to deal with our clients. So we have 24 international offices, salespeople in all of them, so that we can continue to have you know, a good ongoing relationship with our local clients. For all the discussion around global streaming, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, the majority of the revenue and the majority of the work remains local deals with local clients. It's licensing movies and series to Channel 4 in the UK, Channel 5 in the UK, Sky for movies. It, much more so than the global streaming deals. They just tend to be the shiny objects that people want to talk about. So Armando and I put the team together collaboratively. I knew up front that his plan was not to stay. So we were able to do this harmoniously. And he was a fabulous leader for our group through COVID. And then when he was ready, you know, he stepped out and you know, I've been running it since then. I'm really proud that we've come together as an organization really coherently. And I, th and I think we've done a really good job. To shift to the job and to the content, it's obviously a lot of content. I think arguably when you combine the CBS portfolio with the Paramount portfolio with things from Viacom like Yellowstone, we have the largest library of Hollywood content to take to market. And we are very much still licensing. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion around whether companies like ours should license, shouldn't. We believe we should, and we are. That doesn't mean that we haven't changed the way we do it a little bit. But that's sort of what most of 2020 was about. And in 2021, you know, we're continuing to lean into trying to support our clients. COVID certainly changed sort of what we could offer them, and it also changed their needs a little bit. Going into the nitty-gritty about the different uh, kinds of deals that you're doing, you're focusing on licensing out to third parties rather than sort of keeping it in-house, which is a, seems to be what a lot of the other studios are doing, keeping their shows to drive their own services, their own on online consumer-facing uh, services. Tell us about that strategy, because obviously we've got you've got your own streaming services to feed as well. Yes, and I would characterize it a little differently than you just did. So let me start by clarifying there. We do have a heavy commitment to streaming. We've announced CBS All Access in the U.S. will be rebranded Paramount Plus in early 21. We also own a traditional pay service in the U.S. Showtime. We have announced that Paramount Plus will launch internationally 
with three markets having been identified as where we're going to start, Australia, Latin America, and the Nordics, where there actually already is a Paramount Plus, but we're going to beef it up. So we do have a streaming service. We do own lots of other networks. We do have content that needs to be on them. We're making new series for them, and we're licensing library to them. But it goes back to my first answer about how much content we have. We have more series and more movies than our streaming services would need at any given time. When you combine all the, the series from the various places that I get it, we have 140,000 episodes of television. When you factor Miramax, the JV that Paramount did last year with Miramax, we distribute over 4,000 movies. So a streaming service to be successful does not need all of that content on it all the time. And in fact, I think that would that would frustrate consumers. It would be too much to navigate. So we believe there is there's an absolute way to support the streaming services that we're launching while also licensing to clients. And we've continued to license. We've moderated the way we license a little bit. So I've been doing content licensing my whole career. Early days, it was all about exclusivity. If you were going to license something to Sky or Channel 4, they wanted it exclusively and for as long as they could get it typically. We don't do much of that anymore. It's much more about co-exclusive licensing. You can have billions, but it's also going to be over here. We'll give you these library movies, but we're going to use them in this way at the same time. So co-exclusivity, sometimes non-exclusivity. You can have it, but we're free to license it anywhere we want. Windows tend to be shorter because content landing on a service has impact, but sitting there indefinitely, it loses some of the impact. So it's better for everybody to move it. The other thing is I think deals are for, aren't as far out. I did a couple of deals in my Disney days that were 10-year deals. We're hesitant to do stuff like that because I don't think either side really knows the landscape well enough to want to commit to those ways. I'm particularly interested in the idea of sort of the moving away from exclusivity because that's, as you said, was a really key part of the business at one point. Are your clients sort of accepting that or, or is that something that you're bringing them along in, in your direction? So with the possible caveat that pay TV, that first window has really not moved much from an output deal window, I would say, yes, my clients are definitely moving in that direction, working with us. I, I know most of the C21 audience is international, but I'll use a US example just because it's more fresh in my mind. And we have CBS All Access already operating in Showtime operating. We did a deal earlier in the year with Peacock. Streaming service launched in the U.S., licensed them a bunch of content. Two of the things they, they licensed were Ray Donovan and The Affair. Recent, big budget, high quality Showtime series. But the ground rules were you can license them, but we're not taking them out of the Showtime ecosystem. You share them with Showtime. And when I started my career, I don't know that that kind of conversation would have gone very far. At this point, they understood it and they were willing to do business on, on that basis. Now, arguably, it's not as valuable to them as an exclusive license. So they might not want to pay exactly the same amount. But I, I think we're seeing more and more of that. You're also seeing linear networks understand that they have an audience and it may be different than an on-demand audience. So a license where they share with an on-demand service is something they're willing to consider. So the answer is yes. We're seeing a lot of willingness to do this. And there isn't one size fits all when it comes to content licensing at this point. Do you get the sense, um, as we get in the sense from a lot of buyers around the world, is that there's as, uh, a lot of the US programs are, are sort of being taken out of the distribution ecosystem to feed the direct-to-consumer services that are being built and set up by the studios. Are you, are, you, are you sensing a sort of absence that you can move into, a sort of a vacuum that is needed to be filled in the international demand for US programming? Yes, well, you know, I, I do. And, it, and I wouldn't limit it to series. It happens with movies as well. You know, that is one of the, the really fun things about having my role at Viacom CBS is while there 
there are new parameters around how we're willing to license. We are willing to license. And we have such great content, whether it is a Paramount movie, a CBS series, or, or a Showtime series. And, and as you said, Ed, correctly, not every big media company is operating the way I'm describing. So the, that just creates you know more opportunity for us. And that's a good thing for me. Obviously, the buyers around the world have, they spent 2020 changing an awful lot, their needs and their requirements. Some of it was down to the sort of the ascension of streaming. Some of it, some of it was down to COVID. Tell us about how, how your clients have spent 2020 changing and, and what changes from that year are going to move into this year, 2021. We definitely saw COVID really, really negatively impact any client we had US or internationally that lived in the ad supported space. So I think in 2020, a lot of our discussions were around, can we get additional runs of things we already own? Can we get a little bit more utility out of the things we've already paid for? Because we're going to, we're going to freeze budgets. We're going to reduce budgets. We don't know how long this is going to go and how bad it's going to be. So I think there was a lot of leaning into, okay, in a normal era or pre-COVID, maybe we don't run this show quite as much, but we're going to need to now. Clever out of the box licensing, like revisiting nostalgia. So this is a US example, but it's my favorite thing of the year. CBS brought back the Sunday night movie. They hadn't run a broad a theatrical movie on broadcast television in the US in 15 years. And they ran five iconic Paramount movies in May. It brought millions of viewers to CBS that hadn't been on CBS. It was cost-effective programming. It worked so well that they just did it again for six weeks in the fall. And clients internationally have taken similar approaches. What can we dress up because we don't have the resources to spend the money combined with production stuff? So even you know new productions that they might have been happy to run, they didn't turn up. So I think in tw- going forward, post-COVID in 21, we are back in production with our series. And every series that the CBS network has is back in production. Many of them are back on the air. And I think our clients know that things are going to normalize at some point. And regardless, they have to have enough new content to keep their audience going. So I think we're going to see you know, a bounce back of leaning into new content, wanting to commission things with us. But I think there is some learning that nostalgia plays, that a great series can be rerun. And then I'm going to pause and shift to movies because, you know, as you know, I distribute movies as well. And it's been a fascinating year for movies, right, with theaters closed. And you've seen all sorts of strategies right up to Warner's recent announcement about what they're doing, putting all of their 2021 film releases on HBO Max in the U.S. day and day. Uh, Universal leaned into PVOD very quickly. And in the case of, you know, Sky, you know, they participate in PVOD and they got the movies for pay TV. We've done a little bit of everything with the Paramount film. We haven't had a one-size-fits-all answer. We haven't made a declaration that COVID rules apply to all of 2021, and we fundamentally believe in the theatrical experience. So we're trying to be ready for the day when theaters come back. But along the way, you have a business to run. You have movies that you've produced. So we've licensed Lovebirds globally to Netflix. We've licensed a couple movies globally to Amazon. We announced that the SpongeBob movie was going to go to Pivot and then premiere on our own Paramount Plus service in the U.S. We've delayed Windows, Top Gun Maverick, Quiet Place 2 were supposed to be released theatrically in 2020. We moved them to 2021. And our 
are gauging when we think theaters will reopen. So I think uh, to answer your question about what will still apply, I think when COVID is over and theaters have reopened, theaters will rebound and there will be a theatrical marketplace. We will definitely support it, but I think you'll see collapsed windowing. One thing we did was we had Sonic the Hedgehog in theaters still doing business and all the theaters closed. So we accelerated the home entertainment window, whether it was the U.S. or internationally. And we found that that worked really well and everybody understood why we were doing it. But I think you'll see shorter windows. You may see more experimentation like Warner is doing, but I'm hopeful, and at least I know in the case of Paramount, we're going to continue to lean into theatrical as that first window because we think it's a great experience for consumers and we think it's important. Obviously, this full season that the U.S. networks sort of changed the relationship with uh, the streaming services, with the studios, with other networks in within America. You know, they were picking up reruns from Spectrum and things like that. They were bringing in shows from the international market. They were bringing stuff that they had lined up for summer and putting it in full. So they were having, having this sort of uh, Band-Aid kind of... Uh, full season. How much of that was is just down to the production hiatus due to COVID? How much of that was more permanent because of the, the flip to streaming becoming more central and more important? And how is that going to impact your programming supply lines? Okay, I think that was that's a great question. And I'm not sure I really know the answer, but I will tell you what I think sitting here today. It was definitely inspired by the lack of production through COVID. Like we had to figure out things to try. And as I mentioned in an earlier answer, the CBS Sunday night movie came to be because they didn't have new series to run on Sunday night and it was something they thought they would try. It worked well enough that we did it a second time and it worked well enough that we'll do it again in the future. I don't know how often, but it worked. We took Star Trek Discovery, which is a CBS All Access original in the U.S. And that's a series that internationally is primarily with Netflix. Season three, as it that was premiering on CBS All Access, we put season one on CBS. Again, like, okay, we don't have enough new content. It's great series. Not every Everybody saw it because there is a fi- there are a finite number of subscribers. Let's see if people want to watch it on CBS. It's good programming, cost effective, and maybe it will even attract customers who will then go back and subscribe to CBS All Access to see seasons two and three. I think you'll continue to see stuff like that. I think it was smart business. Importing of international series, I think you'll continue to see that. I give Netflix credit. I think they've demonstrated to a lot of boneheaded folks in the U.S., myself included, that it's a, which is a smart audience. They want to see great stuff. I have two boys in their 20s. They love Money Heist. And I think you will see more of that. I think, you know, we've all figured out it's a global marketplace, but it's a two-way street. There's great content that should come in. The other thing I would say, Ed, is the broadcast business is, you know, it's challenged because of streaming, because of other factors. So we have to program it more, more efficiently and more effectively. And we have a lot of discussions now, even about the big shiny new series that are going to go on CBS, about will they travel? And if it's going to work for CBS in the U.S., but it's not going to travel, it's not a good business. And CBS can't carry that load in a vacuum. So if my team can't monetize it, it's not going to work for ProSieben or Channel 4 or Network 10, some, you know, other clients around the world. We're probably not going to put it on CBS because we can't afford to produce it. So all of that is going to impact how the world goes post-COVID and through 21. I'm not sure how much of each of these things that I jumped around on will, will happen or to what degree, but yeah, it's all it's all absolutely relevant and it's all in every discussion we have. Obviously, 2020 was, wasn't was just about COVID. It wasn't just about streaming. Something that perhaps will impact CBS Network is a slight re-evaluation of the sort of uh, cop shows in America. That was one thing that came up throughout 2020. What, what's your take on that? Because obviously, traditional procedural cop shows are hugely popular around the world. And 
Hollywood, you know, supplies them. Is that going to change because of the events of 2020? No, really, really smart question too. So, and CBS is, as a network has done really well with them, right? We, we have a lot of really long running successful procedurals that are based in and around cop shows. So I would say a couple things. First thing, we announced this and I think it was really smart and on point. CBS Studios has done an exclusive deal with a company called 21CP Solutions to help us tell these stories more in a more balanced fashion, a smarter fashion, you know, in, in, in a, a way that we feel comfortable we're, we're doing it responsibly. The, the other thing that's more subjective is I'm, I'm in the discussions around what we want to make, what we want to show, how we want to do it. And there's a lot of discussion around, let's look for other perspectives on the cop show, not necessarily just the police detective's point of view. Let's look at it from other perspectives. Let's try to tell you more rounded stories. So I think we are looking at how we go go about telling the stories from whose point of view. And we've certainly brought expertise into the mix through 21CP to make sure that we're, we're doing it in a way that we feel good about and that we're being responsible. So definitely it's a, it's a topic of much discussion, which is different, by the way, than what I think would have been a bad knee-jerk reaction, which is, okay, we can't we can't do these anymore because audiences really like them. And, you know, they've traveled for a reason. It's, it's good, compelling entertainment. So I think we've struck a pretty good balance. Obviously, the, the evolution of the cop show in, in America will make it more American in a sense, reflecting the different points of view of different people in, in America. Do you think that will make them less appealing internationally because it relies on a sort of universal sort of uh, appeal, didn't they, these procedural shows? Uh, no. And I say no for a very specific reason, and I didn't qualify it. I met, touched on this earlier. If it's only going to work in the U.S., the economics in 2021 are really challenged to make it just for the U.S. So everything that we are commissioning, especially you know expensive hour-long series, we're discussing, will they travel? And if my team does not believe it will travel and we cannot find homes for it internationally, the economics are such that it's we're not going to be making them. So it's incumbent on us. It may be, it's probably a challenge creatively that fortunately I personally don't have to solve, but it's incumbent on us that these things have to work outside the U.S. or you're, you're not you're not going to see them on CBS. It just won't, it won't make economic sense. Some of the European broadcasters are already sort of teaming up to co-produce their own sort of uh, cop procedurals. Is that something that you might want to get into as a co-production partner or a distribution partner? Because obviously there's this appetite for cop shows is, is not going away. So there's a, I think there's a real opportunity to get involved. Is that something that's on your on your radar? Yes. So Dan, the distributor, loves co-production, loves anything good that we can get. So yes, and to be more specific, and this this is really through Miramax, but again, we distribute from Miramax. It's a joint venture. There is, there is one coming in early 21 called Spy City with Dominic Cooper, and I am distributing it outside of Germany, and it's co-production. Miramax is the entity within my family that, that did this, and I'm thrilled about it. I'm really excited to have the series to distribute. We love those conversations. And that's an example of one that we're actually doing. I think it's going to premiere in Germany in February or March. And it's really good. Do you think that the proportion of your catalog that is from outside of America is going to get bigger and bigger? Uh, I do. And I certainly hope so. And we also have, we have a team in Amsterdam headed by an executive named Megan Livers, whose sole function is, she's on the CBS side, CBS Studios, to look for co-production opportunities to bring them to me as the, the distribution piece and to CBS and the other Viacom entities domestically. But if, if you know, Megan has some stuff in development and if those go into production, we will you know, distribute wherever, you know, 
we're able to broker the rights out of the partnership. But yeah, we feel like that's really important. There's great content internationally. If it's a good series and I can get my hands on it, I want to. That's what we live to do. And as you've said and seen, it works in the U.S. If it's good, it's good. And we do have a team in Amsterdam trying to to jumpstart this for us. Dan Cohen from Viacom CBS talking to Ed Waller. James Burstall is chief executive of Argonon, a UK and US production group comprising a collection of scripted and non-scripted companies, including mask singer UK maker Bandicoot. Last year, while reconfiguring its business to deal with the pandemic, Argonon continued to make existing shows and secure new orders rounding out 2020 with the acquisition of US branded content specialist Namorin. Burstall spoke to Clive Whittingham about these developments, the human aspects of steering the company through the crisis, and his plans for 2021, including more M&A activity. 2020 was extremely challenging on so many levels. I think, first of all, personally, because it was uh, a people tragedy, wasn't it, that we had to encounter with all of those people battling with this terrible health crisis and all those deaths. And, you know, across the Arcanon group, we've had people, of course, who've been sick and some people who've lost loved ones. And on a very personal level, that has been extremely difficult to deal with. Professionally, the big challenge for us, of course, was to keep our eye on the ball and keep focus and keep Argonon alive and well and keep people in work, keep a sense of calm purpose in a crazy world where literally day to day, you you didn't know, and even today, now in 21, day to day, it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the next 24 hours, let alone the next week or month or year. So it was my job and the team of my, uh, the job of my senior team to really steer a calm path through turbulent waters. So that's mixing metaphors, isn't it? (laughs) Um, but steer calmly through troubled seas. What is it like being a business owner? You know, Argonon's quite a, quite a big business. You've got a lot of people sort of relying on you. When, like you say, when you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow or by the end of the week, the whole situation's changing. I mean, how do you go about planning and uh, and steering the business? The absolute priority is to be honest with the facts. So what we did back in March is I called together a Cobra team in-house at Argonon uh, with five of my colleagues and peers um, who are not yes people, but people who tell me the truth, however painful it may be. And that is really healthy. So I and we wanted to face up to the very worst possible scenarios. And once we'd started to think through what they might be and start to put together plans, it was absolutely vital to share that information in a candid, honest way with the team, because I needed the team to come on a journey. There's no point sugarcoating the difficult stuff. And there's absolutely no point lying or pretending or boosting false optimism because that is unhelpful and you'd quickly we would quickly have lost the confidence of our team so it was vital to have very clear communication and whilst keeping our eye on the ball and focusing on how we were going to get through also be very honest with people because of course remember on a daily basis I was talking with people across the globe we're a global business we've got seven production companies in all the genres I was talking to people in New York where somebody's husband was extremely sick and ultimately did pass away whilst at the same time we were about 
about to start production on an incredible new series of The Masked Singer, where people were exuberant and excited about getting out on the road. So, of course, as a leader and someone who takes tremendous personal and professional pride in, in, in leading in, a, in an honest and kindly way, but also driving the business forward, striking that balance on a daily basis was very difficult. On a, on a practical day-to-day level as a production company, how much production have you been able to keep going and uh, how have you been able to, to do that? We've done pretty well, all things considered, and 2020 has been far less bad than it might have been. And, and that is a lot to do with the fact that we acted early and we acted in unison as a team back in March. And we did a lot of things. So we accelerated filming as much as we possibly could. We moved 1,500 logins off-site and online across the planet in 48 hours. So everybody moved very smoothly to work remotely. And that has actually really stood us in good stead. Thank goodness we'd invested in excellent technology long ago. Uh, we got editors working remotely. We've got 50 editors working in their homes all across New Jersey and all across the UK. We shifted shoots. So for example, and that's been one of the secrets of our success, I think, all through last year, but also this year too, when we couldn't shoot in the UK or France or Germany or wherever, we would move shoots to the Southern Hemisphere. So we're doing a lot of shooting right now in Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia, South Africa. And it's been possible, therefore, to keep shooting throughout. We've had about 150 new shows commissioned since lockdown, because I think the clients have seen that we've got very meticulous COVID protocols in place. None of our shows have been shut down or even halted. You know, of course, we're managing things extremely carefully, but we've been absolutely meticulous in the detail about protecting our teams and making sure that we can work and that they can do their brilliant work. And um, therefore, we've kept going throughout and we are continuing to go throughout. And in fact, we've now got over 200 hours uh, confirmed for 21. As we move into 2021, a couple of specifics. Do you think that that culture of presenteeism will come back in the same way? I've I've been to your your London office before. It's a, it's a wonderful facility, obviously. I mean, television's a people person and you need to be in the room to some extent. But do you think that the first chance we get, we're all going to be back on the plane to all the events and we're going to be in the office nine to five, Monday to Friday? Or is it going to be more of a hybrid? It's going to be a hybrid. Um, there's a lot of interesting uh, research out at the moment about what's going to happen to the City of London with all the changes that are happening there, as well as Argonon and business all over the world is reconsidering how we go forwards. And actually, we've demonstrated that hybrid model works very well because we have managed to open some of our offices some of the time through 2020. Uh, There were some teams, particularly in development, who wanted face-to-face time. So we opened up to small numbers in London and Liverpool and Glasgow at various times when it was required. We haven't opened offices in the US because people felt that things were working extremely well remotely. But we did have people meeting off-site in the very careful, contained ways, not in the offices. And moving forwards, you know, one of the huge benefits for example, uh, with this remote working is parents with young children, particularly single parents, because of course, when you're a single parent, the face-to-face time with your kids is really precious and sometimes difficult to to get because if you're commuting and then you've got an eight-hour day and then commuting again and your kid's then in bed by the time you get home, you never see your child. And for all parents, that is difficult, particularly if you're a single parent. So we found that actually there have been significant family benefits and well-being benefits to this remote working. And to be honest, 
just my view with everybody is, you know, we are an independent and we're proud to be independent. And that gives us a lot of freedom to follow our dreams. We also have to hit deadlines. And the brutal fact is if we don't get commissions and we don't deliver exceptional programs and we don't deliver on budget and schedule, then we're not going to get more work. It's as simple as that. So I say to people, listen, we've got a deadline to hit. If you want to do the work at three o'clock on a Sunday morning or four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon or whenever, frankly, so long as we hit the deadlines, then make it work. And people have demonstrated that they can be absolutely trusted uh, and deliver exceptional work. So uh, in terms of quality, if anything, I've seen an improvement of quality because our communication, paradoxically, has been better than it's ever been through using this remote working, through talking in this very intimate way. Uh, And it is a paradox because we're all spread out across the world. And yet there's this one-to-one connection. And and it makes my job actually a a lot easier in some respects because I can speak to Lindsay, our new chief creative officer in LA, at any time. I can jump on and I can get her at the top of the hour. And if it's not this hour, it's the top of the next hour. And, you know, we don't need to jump on airplanes and create pollution and get jet lag and spend lots of money. We can actually see each other very efficiently ongoing. And and I do do really um, value that. And that's absolutely going to be part of the business plan moving forward. All the extra protocols that come with COVID, it it takes more time because you've got fewer people and the social distancing, you've got to have PPE and things like that, which is more money. And this is presumably at a time when we're going to have an an economic difficulty or, or crash even, which will affect the ad market, which will affect budgets. What's your strategy for coping with with that specifically as we move through 2021? Well, again, paradoxically, we've actually needed more people to produce than less because you need more people on set. You need more eyes and ears on the ground. Uh, You need more health and safety support. Uh, And yes, it does cost more money. But we found that the channels and the streamers and everybody we're working with, they understand that. And because we were pretty much ahead of the curve in putting together, you know, reams and reams of protocols about how we were going to shoot safely, the channels came on board and have and have supported us financially and, and given us time and space to work through how to produce, keep people safe and understanding that it does cost more time and money and you need more people. And moving forwards again, it's going to continue to be like that. I mean, what we do as producers, we always look for the way around these things and, and we don't have a choice. We have to find a way around it. If you could sum up Argonon's strategy for, for 2021, I mean, again, because we don't know what's going to happen next week, the UK has just gone into another severe lockdown. As best you can, what what is your strategy for, for the year ahead? Strategy remains the same, very much what we put in place at the beginning of 2020, which is first and foremost, continue to invest in talent. Our business is all about the people and we want to keep people in work and we want to give people the support and the security to, to know that they can do their best work because that's what it all hangs on ultimately. We are going to continue to grow our business in the US. We've recently hired a fantastic chief creative officer in Los Angeles, partly actually thanks to the lockdown because we can now work very effectively remotely, even though most of our team are in New York. We've now opened up in LA. We are looking at further acquisition on the West Coast and investment in talent. There are a lot of very smart EPs coming out of networks and cables and streamers looking for a home. And we're good at backing talent and giving them a place where they can do great work and feel supported. We're also going to be significantly developing our branded content business. We recently uh, acquired a fantastic branded content agency called Nemarin. And uh, we brought them in specifically to develop our branded content offering because we do see that uh, budgets are going to be challenged moving forwards. We need to think about 
different ways of funding. Uh, a, lot, a lot of channels all over the world and platforms all over the world want very, very expensive content, you know, million dollars plus per hour. And we do that as part of our offering. Uh, but not everybody can afford that. So we've always been a bridge between consumers, the audience, if you like, um, and also the clients who pay for it. And as we're finding the clients are struggling uh, with funding very expensive content, it's up to us to try and find new and original ways of uh, resourcing them. So branded content is a very important way forward. And we're already seeing, for example, Nemarina bringing in an exciting relationship with TikTok. They've got some great clients like Net-A-Porte, American Express, uh, Hugo Boss, Amazon, some of the big supermarket chains. You know, these are people that we've worked around generally as collaborators and access, if you like. Now we're actually finding them to become business partners, which is a different way for us of working. But I'm excited about that. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about, about Nemarin, because it wasn't a company that I was that familiar with, but and but it's eye-catching because it's it's MA activity taking place at a really, really difficult time. You obviously felt they were worth taking the plunge on that one. Can you tell us a, a little bit about who they are and why? It comes down a lot to the fact uh, that Pete and Graham, um, Pete Ferguson and Graham Heyday, are absolute originators in this field. You know, they came out of tele- the Telegraph and the Guardian. They've got fantastic, impeccable creds uh, working for those two big uh, platforms in the in the branded content space. Um, they know everybody, frankly. And I mean, they've already been introducing us to all sorts of different clients who are making content themselves for their own YouTube channels. They're doing promotional work. And now some of them are thinking and have been thinking for a while, how do we get into long form content? And now that we're getting, you know, there was a big AFP branded content day at Channel 4 recently. We're getting requests from big channels in the UK and it's been happening all over the world for some time longer. How can you come up with the best original ideas and also help fund them? And that's what we're going to be doing with Nemarin. It does seem particularly in the UK to have been maybe, I don't know if sniffiness is the right word about branded content, that it's somehow inferior or somehow tainted by having a brand attached. Like you said, and as we've already discussed, the circumstances we're in economically means that a one-off 100% commission from a network is going to be quite a rare thing, I think, in, in 2021. So could 2021 be the, the year for branded content? It's going to be a hybrid model, as always. Of course, those 100% funded projects are terrific. And when they come along, you know, we bless the day. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, it comes down to audience taste. You know, what does the audience want? Well, the audience are incredibly choosy. And, you know, the audience are not going to take some, you know, commercial funded crap, basically. You know, they won't watch it. Uh, the audience are now got very, very sophisticated. And of course, everybody under 30 spends their life watching branded shows on YouTube, on their tablets, on their mobile phones. They're, they have a completely different way of consuming their, their favourite shows. So they're not snooty about it whatsoever. And frankly, I think we would be mad to miss this opportunity. And I've always been somebody who's open to new technological ideas, new ways of working, new collaborations. And I love making great shows. For me, it's, it's all about the, the next innovative idea, whether it's a hugely entertaining show like The Masked Singer, which gets families sitting down together for the first time and roaring with laughter, or something really difficult like Dispatches, where we're questioning, you know, why is it we're in this mess with COVID? And what are the symptoms? And how do you get through when you're stuck at home on your own? And then in the middle, you know, wonderful talent-led drama like, uh, like uh, Wurzel Gummidge, uh, you know, shot with the most amazing talent. We've got Vanessa Redgrave and Brian Blessed and uh, Shirley Anderson and, and many others. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we're, we're able to come up with a whole range of different kinds of programming, which will entertain on the one hand and cut against that with some really challenging documentary in current affairs. And that for me is really exciting. Can you uh, tell me a little bit more about the growth strategy? You mentioned you're, you're looking at companies on the West 
West Coast, is this just is this going to be just adding more, you know, traditional television production companies or more in the branded content space? I mean, where do you see the growth opportunities for yourselves this year? Both. I mean, you, you have to be open minded when it comes to M&A uh, because there are a lot of great people out there. Quite often, extenuating circumstances don't make them the right fit. It may be that, you know, a particular business model isn't as strong as you'd have thought or the client base is in decline or there's a limit in the way to certain people work in certain ways. You know, I mean, we've got pretty good now at sussing out who we're talking to. So basically, you have to kiss a lot of frogs to find the odd prince. (laughs) So we are having a lot of conversations and we have been for a while, uh, specifically on the West Coast, because that's a very important market for us and we want to develop our business. And we do see actually in the US uh, that the West Coast has become very exciting again since the streamers have become so important. There are, of course, very important buyers, East Coast and West Coast, and New York remains an important base for us. But actually, we have somewhat underserved our West Coast clients. And with Lindsay joining us at Leopard USA and launching Argonon USA, uh, we've got some resources, we've got support from our bank, we've got a fantastic agent uh, who's helping us. So we're taking a lot of meetings and got a very open mind. It could very well be content, both scripted and non-scripted, and it could be branded, and it might be both. It will certainly be talent. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the talent. Given how uh, drama seems to be particularly challenged by COVID, all the reasons that, that would be obvious, you know, more people on set and difficult to social distance when you're filming a drama, is is the focus more on unscripted for 2021 and, and scripted comes back online later down the line? Or am I oversimplifying that? Well, for us as an independent, you know, we have seven companies and we have consciously and deliberately diversified. In, in this challenging world that we live in, in my view, that you don't have an option other than to be diverse. And when something goes in and out of fashion, you can then be very fleet of foot and flexible and move on to something else. Uh, so we love having the mixture of, if you think about the labels, we've got Windfall that makes Specialist Factual with all their CGI and they've you know, won hundreds of international awards. And then we've got Bright Spark that makes documentary. And then we've got Bandicoot that's making The Masked Singer and Shiny for Entertainment. And we've got Leopard Pictures that makes Wurzel Gummidge and has got some big things coming down the track in the scripted space and others. So, I mean, I do personally really get excited about that mix because then within Argonon, you've got these very different flavors of people and you create that dynamic energy when someone comes to you from a science background who wants to make a show about music and you create something exceptional and unusual. And that gets us as creative people fired up. And and that's a lot of our success. So, you know, moving forwards, you know, I want to continue with all of those genres. Each of the seven companies within the group have very specific specialization. You know, they themselves are experts at what they do. So I would absolutely expect them to continue in that vein. Am I right to be that pessimistic about scripted short-term prospects, though, given the, given the COVID challenges? Well, for starters, we've got some big scripted projects coming up in the spring, summer, and we fully anticipate that we will be able to film again, you know, whether it's March or April, um, when the weather starts to pick up and we can go out side again I fully anticipate that we'll be able to film and we'll fit as much as we possibly can into that window it may be what happened last year which is between you know in the UK this is between March and October there is a a discrete window and you just have to pile in there and get the stuff done which is what we did but then also you know this international flexible approach is critical so we are looking at there's a big studio project that we've got coming up and we're thinking well do we want to shoot it in the northern hemisphere or should we take it to the southern hemisphere where things are in certain places is better under control and you know that global outlook is vital because then you have options when you go somewhere else like that at the moment often it's two weeks in a hotel at the airport before you're even allowed sort of into the country does that uh, make production companies
companies lean towards maybe using local crews more or do you just suck up that that quarantine time? I have to say what's been an impressive development this year is working more closely with international talent. Um, I mean, one of our big shows, House Hunters International, for example, which shoots on five continents and is producing five episodes a week. It's a big hit show on HGTV in the US and it's shooting on five continents every single week of the year. Now, normally we would have our team of directors either flying out of the hub in New York or out of the hub in London um, and going all over the world. And of course, you're sending the talent, which is the right way to go, but you're also incurring costs and you're using up air miles and people are getting jet lag and it's quite exhausting. And what we had to do, because we didn't want to stop down production, is we, we decided back in March last year that we were going to start training up local crews. And in fact, one really good way to do that is we had a new commission from Discovery uh, called The Adventure Continues, where our director was sitting in her apartment in New York. And we were shooting 12 episodes in Guatemala, in Melbourne, in Australia, in South Korea. And the challenge was, could we do action sequences and drone sequences directed by a director on the East Coast of America, but with a crew on the ground using equipment and working with people, frankly, all over the world? And we didn't quite know if it was going to work, but it was either that or not produce the show. So we did an awful lot of planning and we did train up local people. And in fact, we've trained up now teams in 150 countries around the world. And when the first rough cut started coming through in mid-April, I was astonished. I couldn't tell the difference. I mean, it is, we have got a brilliant director, a number of brilliant directors, but this particular one, just exceptional. I couldn't believe what she was showing to me uh, because I wouldn't have been able to tell that these shows had been filmed and directed remotely. So on the back of that, you know, we've gained confidence. We can work with clever people all over the world. And so long as we train them up and we explain what we need. What, what is wonderful is you've got a director and a producer who live and are from Guatemala producing now for primetime American television. That would never have happened to them before. It's a great opportunity for them. The general questions we tend to finish with are things like what next for the uh, for the industry? I mean, you're obviously heavily based in the US and the UK, so they're probably separate questions. How do you see the UK industry through 2021, first of all, and the and second of all, the, the US? To be honest, it's a global business. From the moment I set up Leopard Films in 2001, I knew that just focusing on the UK was not going to be enough. I don't think having one base is enough. I think you have to be, at the very least, UK, US. And we sell shows to 167 countries. You know, it is truly an integrated global business. Of course, there are local tastes and cultures and ways of working, all of which you have to adapt to. But, you know, this idea of one nation standing alone, drifting off from a continent, being sovereign, in my professional experience, a complete fantasy. We live in a totally integrated global economy, cultural and financial. And there is no way that we can do anything without being fully connected. And I talked recently about Argonon become a hyper-converged super indie. I really believe that. Technology combined with people and circumstance has pushed us 10 years into the future where our connectivity and the way we communicate with each other and what we can produce and how we can produce it has become so much more efficient. So I'm very excited about where we're headed. There are many challenges and the pain is still there. You know, we still have terrible circumstances with our COVID challenge. We've got to get vaccinated. We've got to focus on getting the vaccinations out there because until people are vaccinated, things are not going to get better. Was there a particular show that got you through uh, got you through lockdown? Well, we're very, very um, focused on diversity. Um, and this is something that might slip out of people's priority lists, some people perhaps, because of everything else that's going on. But, you know, for us, that's not an option. So there was an extraordinary show uh, on Channel 4 called uh, The School That Tried to End Racism, which looked at how um, unconscious bias 
flavours the world that we live in? And is there a way to get people to understand that and change it, change the world we live in? So I've done a lot of unconscious bias training over my career. And again, recently, uh, we've got this programme in-house at Argonon called Argonon for Everyone, where we are very focused on promoting uh, people of colour up through the business, not just at entry level, but also in the middle ranks and senior ranks. Uh, We've got a lot of women in very senior positions in the business. We're ahead of the curve in quite a number of areas, including people of colour, women in senior roles. I'm very proud of the fact that a majority of people at Argonon uh, are educated at state schools. Of course, I admire the great institutions, education institutions of the world, and we have people from there also. But I'm particularly pleased that people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds find a home at Argonon because they, you know, they're brilliant. And I want them to know that the media is their home. And Argonon is a great place for them to do their work. So, um, you know, we're going to continue um, focusing very much on diversity in the business. And um, I really hope that uh, we can continue to push that through 21 because we have to. James Burstall from Argonon, speaking with Clive Whittingham. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.